0: Alright, I know for the teens, this would be a, a new series for them, and I don't want to go back and uh, review everything, and uh, I, at the same time, I do want to hit the, the main uh, words that we've been looking at, and so I want to begin with 2 Peter, chapter 1, and once again, dropping down to verses 19 through 21, where we are reminded again that we have also a more... By the Holy Ghost. Notice we see in verse 19, prophecy, verse 20, prophecy, 21, prophecy. So we are coming back again, if I can turn this on and get this going here. We're coming back to this word revelation. Prophecy, even that word, speaks to a body of truth that God has divinely revealed. Man's reason could not come up with the truths that we need for our salvation, for our spiritual life, for even our purpose for living, why we're here, how we got here, and where we are going. God had to reveal that. Even going back to Adam and Eve in the garden in their state of perfection. They're there, but they had to walk with God in the cool of the garden, didn't they? He had to walk and talk with them and reveal himself to them so they knew why they were there, how they got there, what they were supposed to do with this beautiful garden, and how they were to live. They needed God's revelation. We see that all throughout the Old Testament. And we see the the revelation of, of Scripture. And where there is no vision, the people perish. That word vision is revelation. Where there is no revelation, where there is not, yes, we, are now, we now have the canon, the complete canon of scripture, so we're not looking for new revelation. So, in our dispensation, the revelation that we are looking for, the vision we are looking for, is the divinely revealed word of God. The inspired word of God, which is our second word. God has given us his prophecy, his truth the faith once delivered to the saints. And we don't have to worry thinking that we are missing something or there's some mysterious secret code out there that we have to find or that we have to sit down and we have to study all the various religions for 50, 60, 70 years of our life in hopes of in hope of one day maybe somehow We can discover the truth. Really? i run into people like that. I'm not going to believe until I have studied it all for myself. I'm like, how far are you going to go? How long are you going to live? What deep, dark recesses of the Internet? Books? What errors and fallacies? And by what standard are you going to measure by? When God has already revealed his word. Very clearly and plainly, no other book even comes close to the mastery, to the historicity, to the accuracy, to the preservation of the Word of God. It is a supernatural book because it is the very words of God. It is God-breathed, and that's the word inspired. Revelation, God making himself known to man. Inspiration, God's method for delivering his word to man. And that's what we just read in 2 Peter 1, 19-21. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. So as I've said before, like a stick in a stream, a man, yes, with his experiences, with his talents, with his abilities, but he's moved by the Holy Spirit so that the words that he wrote were the very inspired words of God, the very God-breathed words of God and preserved for us in the 66 books of the Bible, the canon of Scripture. So then preservation. How do we get the Bible in the form that we have it now, the written form? Again, I have probably 10, 12 Bibles at home. And then I have all kinds of Bibles on... Two or three different Bible softwares that I use. And then there's the app on my phone. Uh, More than one app on my phone. We have so much access to the Word of God. I've used the illustration several times, but we support a missionary, Dr. Kim, who just recently finished a translation from the original languages into the dialect for a people in Myanmar, Burma, who never had the Bible in written form. As, the, as Mike Schrock mentioned, in, even in the early days of the New Testament, uh, Evangelist Schrock talked about in the, the synagogue in the first century, it was not unusual for people to not have a copy of the scriptures. They would go to the synagogue where it was carefully kept, and it would be pulled off and read, as he described uh, in in a unique Schrockian kind of way, <laughs> uh, in a very, in a very unique way, he was able to paint that picture for us and uh, talked about uh, how Jesus read from the Isaiah scroll, and uh, he, he he stated so well about how many people wouldn't have a copy of the scriptures; they would go to the synagogue to hear it read. So, God has preserved His word. God promised He would, and God has faithfully protected. His word so that we have the preserved word of God before us today. So then that brings us to translation. Okay, this is where, honestly, where most of the controversy begins. And I don't want to, again, I don't want to be taken the wrong way. I'm not in any way, shape, or form trying to cast any doubt on the inspiration and the authority of Scripture. I believe wholeheartedly, firmly in the inspired infallible word of God... I am in no way, shape, or form trying to introduce anything unorthodox or to create any kind of doubt on the preservation, the revelation, inspiration, and preservation of God's word. Nor am I trying to shift the church's official position into some liberal, neo-orthodoxy type of position. I'm not trying to do that. But I am very burdened because when I read or when I hear, 13% of 8th graders pass a U.S. history and civics exam in the most recent statistics. 13% among eighth graders, the NAEP, they came to our school in Indianapolis uh, and did a couple of tests on, the, uh, on our fourth graders. Uh, fascinating, I, I had a really good opportunity to, to, to sit down with the, the lady who, who brought the NAEP to, the, to our school, uh, no compromise or anything. It just was a very educational experience for me And learning how they did that process. But anyway, in this NAEP test, which is a very, very good standardized test, on basic history, U.S. history and civics, only 13% of 8th grade students passed. Isn't that incredible? So I say that, why? Because I think that sometimes in our Bible-believing churches, we would probably score in that same range when it comes to church history in our knowledge of how God preserved his word for us. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to, we are a well-taught people. You are a well-taught people. You know the word of God. You believe firmly in the word of God. And we are a Bible-preaching church, and we stand for the authority of the word of God. But how many of us really, truly understand church history, the saints that went before us, and how God preserved his word for us today? And it concerns me because we have then another generation and another generation coming up, and they have no idea how our church, Berean Baptist Church, is tied to Acts chapter 2 and the history of the church and the preservation of God's word so that when we preach from the Bible and teach from the Bible and memorize from the Bible, we're not just holding a book that is full of man-made traditions they got passed along, and a bunch of old people decided they didn't want to give up the old relic of the old age and hang on to this dusty old book because they didn't want to change. Is that why we teach and preach the Bible? Because we're just a bunch of old fogies who didn't want to give up the past and want to just sit there and hang on to some old dusty relic? No! We continue to preach and teach the Bible because this is God's inspired, authoritative word that is relevant for the 21st century, just like it was in the days of the Garden of Eden when God walked and talked with Adam and Eve. We have the preserved, inspired, infallible word of God before us. So we need to know our history. I know I'm a history buff, but I'm a little weird. And I know that um, I get A little OC about history sometimes and and geography kind of drive, I think, my my wife crazy or my kids crazy um, sometimes because I want to know how we got where we got, even if there's GPS. I still want to know, you know, how we got there. I want to know how did this happen, the history of this and the history of that. But we need to know church history. We need to know that our faith, it rests ultimately upon Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone and the apostles. And the faith, you know, once delivered, the Apostles' Doctrine. But we need to understand that those people who went before us lived according to the same rule of faith that we live by. So this is not some dusty old book that a bunch of old fogies have hung on to because we're afraid of changing with the times. That's what the liberal 21st century progressive, progressive Christians and progressive politics wants us to think about the Bible. They want us to think that this is out of touch, this is old, and it doesn't speak to us today, that there are newer, better ideas out there. And we have got to be careful because it has creeped into the church, even in good churches that are now buying into progressive theology, and they begin to adopt worldly standards and accept worldly doctrines. And before long, the church ceases to be the church and is no longer preaching the whole counsel of God. So when we get to this word translation, again, I want us to be careful, and I don't want, it, I don't want to come across the wrong way. I want us to be understanding that God has faithfully preserved his word. But that does mean that God has communicated God's word into languages From the original languages. And what are those three that God used to record? In what languages? What three languages did God record his word? Hebrew. Greek and Aramaic. Okay. So the only. The only. Inspired documents are the original. What we call autographs. Those original documents. Okay. But. There have been copies of copies of copies through the years, faithfully, carefully preserved. And some of those have had to be translated, obviously, because we don't carry around a Greek Bible, a Hebrew and Aramaic Bible. Um, I, I, I could be wrong. Maybe, maybe Earl does. Earl may still carry around his Greek New Testament. Read from your Greek New Testament. No. Okay. <laughs> Jerry Vector, he reads from his Hebrew. (laughs) Just picking on a couple of you. But we don't carry around the Hebrew Bible. I had professors in college carried around their Hebrew or or their Greek text. So we carry around a translation that has been carefully preserved and translated. But it's a copy of a copy of a copy. It's a translation of a copy. All right. So, again... I know this is background, this is review. So then that leads to interpretation. Correctly understanding what God has said, Lord willing, the next uh, two to three weeks we'll deal with more matters of interpretation and then application, which in some ways, I know translation is probably the most controversial, but I would say application can be the most difficult. Because when it comes down to rightly... I know we're supposed to rightly divide the word of truth, but then that involves the right application of the word of truth. And that's where I think sometimes it's the hardest, because we don't want to obey what God clearly says. We don't want to apply God's principles. We want to make ourselves an exemption. And uh, we'll say it, it, it applies to everybody else, but not to me. Things like that. So those are the six. If we want to add illumination as the seventh word. Uh, those are the words that we have been looking at. And again, we've been spending a lot of time on this word translation. Any questions or comments so far? Yes, Derek. The Correct. The original autographs are gone. Exactly. But we have faithful copies. What's that? Okay. Yeah, it, it is okay. Right. And if we had an original autograph, I have a feeling that Catholic Church would have built a cathedral and made some shrine, right? <laughs> yes, Earl. Correct. 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 If the word was there right. To right. Right. Correct. Correct. Let's let's keep our heads. Exactly. So that comes down to translation philosophy, dynamic and and informal. Dynamic is less formal, less literal, more interpretive, and sometimes lends itself to paraphrasing. Formal equivalency is literal word-for-word text and syntax. Syntax basically has to do with word order and that kind of thing. All translations use both. I know that there are people who will say a certain translation is strictly formal. Well, I can give you examples of where it is dynamic. But anyway, the dynamic equivalency and the formal equivalency are used, are, are both used in all translations. But there are translations that use more dynamic than they do formal. I believe that the better translation philosophy is the more formal the more word-for-word. Word. But no translation is strictly word-for-word. Word. I used the example of Clayton Livingood. When he was here, he, he left for Spain, and he has a Spanish Bible, and he showed me his Bible, and I think it had English and it had Spanish side-by-side. Side. And there are Spanish words that translate differently than English, but there has to be some amount of formal as well as dynamic equivalency because of differences in language, and syntax, certain words that aren't found in certain languages. So the Bible, for instance, the the, the Greek word for love, there's four. Three of them are used in our Bible. But how do we translate love in in the Bible? Charity or love? But there are at least three. And I think in classical Greek or in uh, the Greek language as a whole... There are four words for love. So just some things to, to keep in mind. So then we get into textual criticism. That's a scary, it's a scary word, scary term. But the general definition for textual criticism is simply the study of the text of scriptures. Lower criticism involves analyzing the manuscripts. We would consider that the, the, the work of scholars, <laughs> the work of experts. All right. But there's higher criticism criticism, which is the form of the text and what tells us about the process of writing and transmission of text, and it can become subjective. Okay, So, capital H, capital C, higher criticism, is extremely dangerous. German rationalists who went and they took apart the Bible in the 1800s. Anyway, that's another part of history. I'm not talking about capital H, capital C, higher criticism. But that higher criticism is potentially dangerous when not coming from a worldview, a view of the Bible as the inspired, authoritative, infallible word of God. So the German rationalists, other higher critics, the Jesus seminar, other so-called scholars. I mean, I was doing a Bible study on the Purdue campus and one of our uh, one of the, the the people that was there, one of the students that was there, said he was in a class at Purdue, where the professor claimed to be a Christian, and she was literally dismantling the Bible, and saying Genesis was written by multi, you know different groups of people over time, and Daniel, and he was, and so I was handing him some material to to help him, and and uh, he was he was facing it right there in the classroom, and having to write papers and do reports and take tests, and he was dealing with a supposed Christian who denied the inspired, infallible, authoritative word of God. Um, so that's a, the dangerous side of, of higher criticism. Okay? So those are some terms. This is what Earl just alluded to. Okay? There are technically three manuscript families. The majority text is just a, another way of understanding the majority of manuscripts fall into certain manuscript family. All right. So Western, the Western family of manuscripts compiled by Lucian, third century. He's gathering manuscripts and he is noticing the particular uh, characteristics of those manuscripts. He noticed or in this Western family, there are more scribal paraphrases and additions. Not that the scribes were trying to add to the word of God. But as they were compiling the Greek manuscripts, they were making marginal notes and clarifying. Okay, And then there was the Byzantine, which is 95% of manuscripts. Likely copied from the Alexandrian manuscripts and polished carefully by scribes. That doesn't mean they're adding to or changing the word of God. These are people who were carefully preserving the word of God. Copying the manuscripts. But let me give you an example. If I were to hand out, let me say there's 75 people in this room. If I were to hand out 75 pieces of paper and I were to stand up here and start reading from a text. And you all had to copy. And I wrote, and I I said, in the beginning was the word. Pause. And you all are writing, in the beginning was the word. And then I went on, the word was with God. The word was God. The word was God. Same as in the beginning with God. You do that for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, several hours, with an inkwell on parchment, papyrus, animal skins. What, what do you think is going to happen? Now, Vern, or, or Vern and Chris, or I'm sorry, Chris, pardon me, Vern. Chris's handwriting is incredible. I mean, wow. I mean, she can... She might get it all right. She might be perfect, okay? My wife, I mean, she can write on a chalkboard in cursive, and it's immaculate. It's like, I never got that talent, you know? Um, well, Angie, she, she probably, I don't know, you use some chalkboard still, okay? You probably have good handwriting on chalkboard. Some of the teachers, educators, some of those people who did a lot of writing, they probably would get it all right. But some of us would be like, in the beginning, And then we'd be tailing off. We'd be inserting something. We'd miss a T. We'd miss an A. Does that make sense? So the scribes are coming along, and they're then compiling all these manuscripts. And you had a bunch of scribes in a room recording, copying. And then they're comparing. And there's errors here. There's an extra A, and, or the. There's an extra phrase. Think about it. If there's a certain phrase that's used over and over and over and over again, what, what tends to happen? You skip it or you add it where it doesn't belong. Okay? And that, so then they bring the command scripts together and they compare them. Well, some of those got into circulation. Does it mean that somebody was trying to change the Word of God? No, it just means those scribes were fallible human beings copying with an inkwell on a parchment in a darkly lit room, not with LED energy, save the earth lights candle lit, maybe some sort of oil, into the night sometimes. They weren't trying to change the word of God. Okay? Yes, Earl? (laughs) Earl. (laughs) Yeah, they didn't have vision works and and, and, and ophthalmologists and all that. Right. Okay. So we have to understand that as as they're copying. Okay, then there's the Alexandrian, and we have the different texts. It's only about 30 manuscripts. Clement, Origen, Didymus, Cyril, they all quote from the Alexandrian text that also includes Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and Ephraimi Rescriptus. These are specific manuscripts, and there's incredible history about each one of them. It's fascinating, but I won't bore you with all the details. So those are the three families, Okay. Why did the Byzantine become 95% of the manuscripts? Anybody know why? Largest number of Greek-speaking people. Yeah, scholars, but the largest number of Greek-speaking people were north of the Mediterranean. You have Greek culture, Hellenistic culture. You have Roman culture. Romans kept a lot of the Greek culture. Where were the majority of Greek-speaking people? Middle East, Israel area, north of the Mediterranean Sea. As you go south into Egypt and down into Africa, you have fewer and fewer Greek-speaking people. So where is Codex Sinaiticus found? Down in, around Mount Sinai, down in the, yeah, in the southern part, down closer to Egypt. Vaticanus. That would be a little different because it was found uh, in uh, an area in Italy, from what I understand. I don't know enough about Ephremi Rescriptus, but the point is this: Why would there be more Byzantine manuscripts? Because they had the most Greek-speaking people, higher-populated area, needed more manuscripts to pass out to people as more churches are started and people need the scriptures. They needed copies. So that's why you have so many more of the Byzantine, okay? But you know what I think is so fascinating? I want us to really understand this. God preserved his word, and he gave us three faithful manuscript family lines. I just, I love this. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. And you know when some of the Alexandrian line of manuscripts were discovered and compiled... In the 1800s, when the German rationalists were producing their garbage theology and their doubt on the Word of God. And you know what? Another Greek text is compiled and it has Alexandrinus, Sinaiticus, Ephraimius Rescriptus. Um, I'm, I'm forgetting one. Um, Alexandrinus. Okay, all, all these. Wow, isn't that amazing? They're, and they go back even further than the Byzantine manuscripts, which most of them are, uh, I forgot to put it in my notes, I believe they're, most of them are 5th fifth century, fifth century or later, okay? Because again, 1st, 2nd, 3rd century, they're using these copies. I mean, have you ever, you ever seen papyrus paper? You pass that around a lot, it, it falls apart. We're, we're, animal skins are a little better. Eventually they had better paper, codexes, which is a book form. Codex is a book form instead of the scrolls. But you have all these people using these papyrus manuscripts. Eventually they go away. So the oldest Byzantine manuscripts I believe only go back to around the 5th century whereas the, the uh, Alexandrian go back even I think some as early as uh, the 1st the century or 2nd century. I forget. Uh, I should have made better notes in my in my notes here, but they go back even further. And I think it's interesting that those in the Alexandrian family, many of those were discovered and compiled at a time when there was another assault on the Word of God coming out of Europe. And God had, a, once again, a faithful preservation of His Word and a testimony to that. Okay? Just like the Dead Sea Scrolls, another testimony. And again, we're talking close to 6,000 manuscripts. Of the New Testament alone. No other book has that kind of testimony. I keep using the illustration of Homer in the Iliad and the Odyssey, boring books that I don't know if you'd ever want to read. I'm sorry. For all of you literature lovers, go ahead, read your Iliad and your Odyssey. That's fine, they're, they're, they're beneficial. Uh, I never found them interesting. But anyway, the Iliad and the Odyssey don't have that kind of manuscript evidence. And I think the closest copies are several centuries removed from Homer's original, but we don't doubt that Homer wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. The Bible has thousands of more manuscripts. Earlier, in three family lines. It's incredible, the testimony to the preservation of God's word. Now, I said a lot there. Earl, you had something you were going to say, or maybe I, no. Any any other comments or questions so far? Okay. Okay. So, I used this a couple weeks ago to help us, and again, this is uh, part of our, our theme this year in our confidence in the scriptures, but this is our statement in, in our church constitution, our statement of faith, and it's important, I believe, as, as your pastor, to help us understand why we have this in there, and to explain why we believe what we believe, and why we have this position, okay? So, I'm not going to read the whole thing again, but... It is there in our statement of faith. This is a 1611. Now, how well did we read that? And it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel that there was a certain Levite sojourning on the side of Mount Ephraim who took to him a concubine out of Beth. Look at that. We don't use the 1611 King James, do we? We use the 1769. 1769. And we don't read um, in in that kind of script anymore. So it has been changed by translators. Faithful translators who love the Word of God and believe in the inspired, preserved Word of God. But they had to change the King James 1611. And notice over here, what do we see over here? Commentary. Commentary, marginal notes okay so they were under they were adding not adding to the word of god but they were adding clarifications hebrew terms giving explanation okay so so this is just an example of differences in language and how translation comes into play king james I'm sorry, the interlinear from the Greek, you have in the, in the green, in the green you have the phrase and there's only one word. So the translator had to add a word or two to help make the translation make sense because it wasn't a perfect word for word. For instance, we have seen as one Greek word. We have looked upon as one Greek word you see how the translators have to do some amount of interpretation in order to translate in a way that it's understandable in the English language. Nat? So the word for word up on that word highlighted would be the beginning we have heard, we have seen, we have looked upon, okay, a handle, that would be word for word? Word for word would be has, N apo, rk, has. That would just be the green in English? Yes, the Greek... The green is the English that's translated from that one word. Okay. Mm-hmm. So all those other words are filled in. The, that which mm-hmm. was from. Yeah, Haas would be that which. That would be a perfect word for word right there. Was, and, from, oppo. But you can see where the translators had to add words. Oh, the green was added. The green is the King James. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. So you can see where the King James translators had to come up with we have seen from Harao. So they're looking at the word horaho and they're saying, hmm, what's the best way to translate that? That's a lot of work. That takes a lot of scholarly understanding of the languages. So when the Passion Translation comes out and it's one guy who doesn't even know the original languages, it's a garbage translation. The Passion Translation is a garbage translation. It's one guy who doesn't even know the original languages who wants to add his interpretation to the Bible. It's wrong. Here's scholars who understand the original languages, and they're having to determine hara'o, the best way to translate as we have seen. Theo'aomai, we have looked upon. I have watched a video of a committee of translators debating how to translate one word. What is the best word for this translation? And they're God-fearing men who love the Bible and believe in the inspired Word of God, and they're wanting to be the most accurate in translating from the original language. It was a fascinating thing to to see. Okay, so then we see in the New King James, or that's the King James without the interlinear. This is the New King James, which basically is, the New King James is translated from the TR. It just takes out the these and the thous, modernizes the language a little bit. You can see the NIV starts to begin a little bit more of that dynamic equivalency, a little bit less formal. NASB is more literal. And then the message, you can see a lot more of a paraphrase, an interpretation added in, okay? All right, so this is from the preface to the King James. Okay, I have two slides here on the preface to the King James. This is not the whole preface. I'm sorry for the older English. Uh, I wish I had time to read everything, but they right here in this they explain their interpretation, their translation philosophy. This is from the preface to the King James. Some peradventure would have no variety of senses to be set in the margin, lest the authority of the scriptures for deciding of controversies by that show of uncertainty should somewhat be shaken. And we're all like, huh? <laughs> These are incredibly smart men. There's a book called God's Secretaries, and it is all about the King James translators. Fascinating book. Fascinating. Some of them were not very good men. Uh, a couple of them were, were pretty, pretty bad dudes. But they were, they were brilliant, brilliant men. And they were used um, to, to translate. But they're saying, what are they saying right here? If we can make sense of that, what are they saying? We're adding marginal notes because we may not have the perfect translation here. There may be some changes needed along the way. So we added marginal notes for clarification. This is the King James translators in the preface saying we are adding marginal notes for clarification. That's basically what they're saying. Not to stir up controversy, not to cause doubt on the authority of the scriptures. They say it right there lest the authority of the scriptures for deciding of controversies be that show of uncertainty. They don't want to create doubt. They want there to be accuracy in the translation. For though whatsoever things are necessary manifest, as St. Chrysostom saith, and as St. Augustine, and those things that are plainly set down in the scriptures, all such matters are found that concern faith, hope, and charity. There's no doubt on the clear doctrines of the word of God. That's what they're saying. As we translate... As St. Christopher and St. Augustine said, we are, not, we are translating in such a way as to cast no doubt on the clear doctrines of the word of God. That's their philo- Don't we respect that? Of course we do. We've used the King James for 400 plus years. They had a very good translation philosophy. They believe in the inspired authoritative word of God, but they understand there might be a need for some clarification, but they don't want to cause any doubt. I wish we could go on down. Um, to this, and then, therefore, as St. Augustine saith, that variety of translations is profitable for the finding out of the sense of the Scriptures. Whoa, 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 wait a minute here. I'm not trying to be controversial. I know I'm walking on some eggshells. I love the King James. I love the King James. I've grown, grown up on it. Luke 2, Psalm 23, Psalm 1, Psalm, the Lord's Prayer. There's no other more beautiful translation in my book than the King James. But notice what the King James translators are saying. The variety, as St. Augustine saith, that variety of translation is profitable for the finding out of the sense of the scriptures. The King James translators are admitting that there can be variety in the translation without affecting the meaning, without corrupting the word, without changing the word of God. They are saying that themselves in the preface to the King James. Okay? Uh, let's see here. Ah? Uh, there we go. Again, I don't have time to read all this, but here's another section from the preface. Another thing we think good to admonish thee of, uh, gentle reader, that we have not tied ourselves to an uniformity of phrasing or to an identity of words as some peradventure would wish that we had done, because they observe that some learned men somewhere have been. As exact as they could that way, truly, that we might not vary from the sense of that which we had translated before if the word signified the same thing in both places. Again, they're admitting to a need for some variety, but they want to be faithful to the meaning, to the word, to the original language. Okay, And then down here, add here and to that niceness in words was always kind of the next step to trifling, and so was to be curious about names, too. Also, that we cannot follow a better pattern for elocution than God himself. Therefore, he, using diverse words in his holy writ and indifferently from one thing in nature, we, if we will not be superstitious, may use the same liberty in our English versions out of Hebrew and Greek for that copy or store that has given us. Again, they are claiming authority of the word of God, but they're saying there can be a little variety in translation. We're doing our very best based on our knowledge of the languages. Okay. Um, wish I could go in and, and read some more of this. Um, he talks about how they avoided certain words because they didn't want to sound Catholic. <laughs> they wanted to be very careful not to sound Catholic. They also used words. Uh, I think it's up here. Uh, they didn't want to become. T- they didn't want to be too congregationalist. Interesting. Okay. Um, who's that? A, who's that? A little bit of a slap. Toward. us us congregationalists oh, you know they put a little slap in there they didn't want to use words that would adhere to that would that would make the congregationalists happy because you had puritans and you had the separatist puritans the pilgrims who they didn't want anything to do with the king james translation they took the geneva bible to the new world Okay, because they didn't like King James. All right, so just again, just a little bit of history and context, not to attack, not to cause doubt, but to strengthen our faith. And this is right out of the words of the King James translators themselves. Yes? Correct. Right. But they would have been agreed on one thing. They would have congregationalists for Anabaptists. Yep. They would have both been Friday. Yep. You're right. You're exactly right. Yep. Thank you, Earl, for that. Appreciate it. Ah. Okay. So, real quick, we just have just a few minutes, and then we'll come back to this, Lord willing, next week. All right. Here's an example of a verse we know very well. I believe that a good translation keeps the phrase only begotten. Okay, I'm not saying that it's the only way to translate the phrase. I'm just saying I really love the phrase only begotten. Why? Because the Greek word is monogenes. The only unique son of God. There's only one son of God and he's unique. Why? Why is he unique? He's God. He's the God man. Begotten retains that sense, monogenes, generated only from God, uniquely generated from God, as the Son of God, as God himself, as God, okay? But you see, the ESV, they only put his only Son. I think that's a poor translation. That's me personally, okay? I'm not saying that the ESV is to be, cast into the lake of fire, okay? I'm saying that that's where I feel like it's weak. Look at the NIV. His one and only son. Okay. But I still feel like it comes a little bit short, all right? Again, the revised NASB, the 1995, his only begotten son. I, I really like how they keep begotten. But the NASB, the first version, his only son. And then you have the message, which is just a paraphrase. The message is just a paraphrase. It's not a translation. They put, he gave his son his one and only son. So they try to add. And then they at least try down here, where the, the word begotten is used again, they put one of a kind son of God. So they tried to maintain the distinctness of the son of God. But this is where I believe there is a better sense of the word monogenes. Okay, I know we're, we're running out of time, we'll have to probably end here, but this is an example of translation, and it matters how the translators view the Bible. It matters how the Bible is translated from the original languages. When I was in Kenya, there was a missionary who was trying to translate into Swahili from the King James Version. Because he didn't believe that the Swahili Bible was accurate because it wasn't translated from the King James. He wasn't using the Greek and the Hebrew. He was translating into Swahili from the King James. He was a Ruckmanite. He believed that the King James corrects the original language. He believed in continuing inspiration. Inspiration didn't end with the original autographs. It continued through the translators. To the King James. Who the King James translators themselves were inspired by God. Continuing inspiration is not biblical. Repeated inspiration is not biblical. Because then that means there might be some guy down here. At some local church. Who thinks he has some new revelation. Well what's to say he doesn't have a continuing inspiration. Or a repeated inspiration. See how dangerous that is? I know a very. Popular preacher. If I said his name, he wouldn't recognize it. Lots of books. He's running a big conference. He's going to get thousands of people there. And he believes that there is a form of continuing inspiration through the gift of tongues. So some people can get new revelation from God in their tongue speaking. Dangerous. Okay? So it's important that translation philosophy be... From the view that God revealed his word and the word of God is the inspired, infallible, authoritative, God-breathed words of God. If they don't come with that view, translation can get really out of whack. Okay? And there's other reasons for the multiple, multiple translations that we'll get to, Lord willing, next week. All right, we're out of time, but maybe we could squeeze in two minutes for a question or a comment. Earl's out of his. He's used up his. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> Derek. <laughs> right. 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 I'm glad you're not God. <laughs> We've been in a lot of trouble. <laughs> no offense, Derek, but... <laughs> Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. And if God promised to preserve his word, then he did that. He kept his promise. Otherwise, he's not God. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Great comment. All right. So uh, we'll have uh, Ray, if you'll mind, if you don't mind closing us in prayer and uh, then we'll get ready for the service. of your mind and doing these notes as well as our new studies. Thank you for just the love of the body and for everyone who is here today. Just ask that uh, we would learn what you have for us today and that we need to be applying each individual in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right. We are finished for our Sunday School Hour. We'll, get, we'll start the service in about 15 minutes. Thank you for being here.